0: This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Dr Richard Elliott, the Head of Football Studies at Southampton Solent University. He discusses the origin of the courses and their outstanding track record in the football industry, his research into player migration and how it can affect development pathways, as well as his current research into mental health issues in football. I hope you enjoy. Richard, first of all, thank you um, for jumping on, and um, obviously our mutual friend slash colleague, Graham Mills, put us in touch, Um, sounds like it could be really interesting, so I guess firstly, thank you for jumping on, and how are you?
1: Uh, I'm very, very well, thank you, and it's great to join you on the podcast.
0: Perfect, so obviously for those of you, people that don't know, could you just explain kind of a little bit about your background, what you're currently doing, and I guess how your past crossed with Graham, really?
1: Yeah, so I'm um, well. I'm currently uh, head of football performance and participation at, at Solon University. Um, so effectively, that means um, I have ultimate responsibility for the roughly 400 students that we've got uh, learning on our two football-specific degrees, uh, but also on our professional education courses that we run in conjunction with um, the League Managers Association for. Um, staff at Premier League and Football League clubs, um, and also in conjunction with with Kick It Out. Um, I also have responsibility for for all of the staff who, who work within the program. I'm very fortunate to have an incredibly experienced and very talented group of staff, um, and and Graham um, is is one of those staff, and and, and he and I um, sort of knew of each other, I guess, through through football um, and through some involvement that we. We had with Bournemouth Football Club over over a number of years, and and I was familiar with with some of the work that he was doing. Um, and then when we, uh, yeah, when we advertised for a uh, uh, an A license coach that we needed uh, um, a couple of years ago, um, we were very fortunate that Graham made an application, and he um, uh, and he joined us on the program, and he's done a great job, um, as all the staff do, um, and uh, has made quite a significant uh, significant contribution to the to the work that we do.
0: I guess before we dive into how exactly the program came about and is in its inception etc how are you guys finding the current circumstances obviously I imagine it's presenting a lot of challenges for your learners and staff in terms of delivery and all that type of stuff so how's that been as a institution trying to navigate those difficult times?
1: It's it's been tremendously difficult, um, and and of course, it's been tremendously difficult for um, everybody in all walks of life and in every conceivable different industry. Um, higher education is not immune, of course, to to these kind of challenges, and in some ways, I think we've we've felt it as bad, if not worse, than than some other areas, uh, because of the amount of uncertainty and. And of course, the, the way in which we work with so many hundreds, or in fact, across the university, thousands um, of, of young people. Um, so having their best interests in mind um, and doing what is right for them is obviously always at the at the front of our of our minds. The challenge that that's sort of presented for us, uh, particularly in a practical environment in which we're you know, delivering education programs, which are, very much based with lot of our students on the pitch, boots on, working with our coaching staff. Those challenges have been quite significant. We just haven't been able to do that um, from the start of this academic year. So um, we've been in a position where we've um, had to take some of the practical components of the degree courses and, um, and turn them into uh, theoretically delivered um, modules. Um, the, the, the coaching staff particularly have done a brilliant job, I have to say, in regards to that, um, because they had to act quickly, um, they had to think uh, with quite a significant amount of latitude, and they had to sort of develop their their practice in a way that they couldn't have predicted that they would have had to. So we've, I think, done a really, really good job um, in terms of transforming our curriculum from one which we are used to delivering face-to-face to one which has been delivered entirely online. And the good news is that the feedback that we've had from from our students has been that they are overwhelmingly um, pleased with the experience that they're having. As, as one of the representatives said to me uh, last week, he was amazed at how real it all feels. So that's the thing really for us. We wanted to try and replicate the campus-based experience remotely, and um, I, think we've, I think we've done that. Uh, it's been difficult because it's a, it's a massive learning curve for us as well as them, uh, with Zoom initially and then Microsoft Teams and various other bits of software and systems that we're integrating into our practice. Uh, just the, the, the physical difficulties, if you want, of not being in a room with people. Um, and the sort of the way in which that um, works in regards to cognitive processes and things like that. But uh, but I think that we we had a, a really sort of well thought out series of structured processes that we that we moved through, and by um, by putting it together as a team and adopting those processes and being sort of cohesive as a unit, uh, I think what we delivered is is excellent and uh, and that would seem to be borne out through the feedback that we have had from the students.
0: So, obviously, I know a lot of the work you do, as you said, will be will be practical. How have you gone about getting those uh, modules online, and, and what does that look like, if you've got any examples of it?
1: Yeah, so we um, already use an online learning platform called Solent Online Learning. It's a, a virtual learning environment. So we were already... We were already used to delivering a certain amount of our curriculum online, but it, the, the model that we always used pre-COVID was one in which there was, uh, the starting point was always either the classroom um, or the lecture theatre or the pitch, and um, and that's where you would do a lot of the, uh, the practically-oriented stuff, which you would then follow up um, through additional support that we would be provided via the virtual learning environment. The students were, were used to that, the staff were used to that, but the virtual learning environment only provided a, a relatively small amount, if you want, of additional support relative to that which was delivered physically in the classroom, face-to-face or out on the pitch. What we've, of course, had to do is to um, move to a model in which there's absolutely zero uh, physical. In classroom or on pitch, face to face, currently, and in which we're delivering 100% through that virtual learning environment. What what that's kind of meant for us is that we've had to uh, learn very quickly the full extent of the functionality of the virtual learning environment, if you want. And I think a lot of the tutors, and I put myself in this category as well. A lot of us probably used maybe. 20 to 30% of the functionality of the virtual learning environment, whereas now we're using far, far more. And and one of the things I'd say, I'll go back to our team approach, is certainly I, as one of those users who used the VLE, but probably in a more basic format, my colleagues around me have been tremendously helpful in um, signposting me to certain functions that it has that I didn't know existed and things that it can do. And I think we've all kind of helped each other with that. Um, and through our, um, what we call our Learning Technologies Unit, LTU, the experts in that department have also helped us to understand what the system can do and how we can use it to best effect. So in terms of sort of the practically oriented stuff, what what the tutors have been able to do is effectively rewrite the curriculum so that rather than delivering physically or demonstrating, as they might have done on the pitch, they've been able to integrate a range of different resources, videos, uh, session plans, practices, things such as that, onto the virtual learning environment, and then um, allow the students in their own time to navigate their way through those with direction. What we've then done is, via Microsoft Teams, we've then um, incorporated a series of live Seminars, So uh, smaller groups of students who will meet live with a tutor to discuss in real time the aspect that they're currently studying in regards to that module. Effectively, the only thing that they haven't had in this first semester is the ability to lace up their boots and get out on the pitch. Um, But otherwise, from a sort of a, a pedagogical perspective, if you want, from a teaching perspective, nothing has really changed. And the learning outcomes will be met in a similar way. They just won't quite have the same practical orientation that they would have had had we been on campus.
0: So on the, on the assumption that um, obviously some of them might be doing um, coaching or might be doing delivery and all that type of stuff, is that something that you'll try and navigate back towards if, if stuff did die down a little bit?
1: Absolutely. That is the that is the end game for us, if you want, that we we need to get back out onto the pitch as soon as possible. Um, I think it, whilst we can um, cope admirably in regards to the systems and processes that we've got, it's, I don't think it's ever going to um, totally replace the ability to actually get out on the, um, on the grass. So the sooner we can get the students back up to, to Test Park, which is our, our football centre, um, and we can actually get them out there and, and, and engaging in those practical activities, the better.
0: And then moving forward, if COVID dies down and all in an ideal world, what will you keep from your current setup and what would you, um, and how would you integrate the practical setting? Because I imagine there's some work that you've put together and you think, actually, this probably works better than it did before.
1: Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, and it's a piece of work that we've got ongoing uh, at the moment. Because one of the things I think that we have realised in respect to being forced into this situation is that there are things that we do or have the capacity to do far better than we did before. So the use of the VLE now and the capacities that it has and the support that we can provide to students, that has increased enormously. And it would certainly be our intention moving forward now that even um, once we get back to a position in which we can get back down to the football center and we can integrate the campus-based activities, we would still continue to support the students via the VLE at a level that we have already. I mean, for our first year students particularly, they don't know anything else. So that we sort of set the bar, if you want, for them. So if we went or if we were to go back to the, the, the sort of the lesser usage, if you want, of the VLE, um, it might feel like a backward step. So I think now that we've got the, um, the, the structures in place, now that we've got the framework, if you want, is relatively easy for us now to, to maintain that framework with, with a few tweaks here and there, post-COVID.
0: As you said, you are very well known within, within the football industry for your um, expertise and the number of people that go on to have successful employment within the industry. So I guess the first question for me is, how did how did it come about? How did it start from, I guess, from nothing to the point you are now?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's that's, a get, that's a get. it's a really interesting question. Um, so Solon's first involvement in football education actually came um, in the mid to end 1990s, and you know anybody who knows anything about the history of or the recent history, if you want, of English football knows that after 1992 and the introduction of Premier League football transformed um, in in England and of course all across Europe and other parts of the world as well. And um, you know, there were some significant changes that occurred in football at that point in time. Uh, new media relationships, huge amounts of money were flooding into the game, and we began to see, if you want the, the, the early, if you want professionalisation of professional football. You know that might sound quite strange, but to those who were involved in the game certainly uh, and have been involved in the game for a, a number of years, they will know that that uh, sort of pre nineteen nineties. Um, there were lots of aspects of professional football in England that weren't particularly professional, and um, and and therefore things things were changing um, through a number of pre-existing relationships that existed with South University way before I I originally joined. There were some some conversations were going on in respect to um, uh, should we call it like administrative education uh, between. Um, the League Managers Association um, and the university, and the representatives from the League Managers Association had been made aware of some existing education programs that the university was engaged in, which they thought might have some sort of value, if you want, for, um, for professional football clubs, because these clubs were professionalising very rapidly, but as I say, a lot of the processes and the practices behind the scenes perhaps weren't keeping up with the the um, the level of development that was that was evident. So it was in the sort of mid to late 1990s that uh, staff at the university the university started to have conversations with with the LMA about developing a professional education course, effectively for football um, administrators, more specifically club secretaries. Um, and if you know anything about sort of the internal workings of a professional football club, just like a company secretary in any business, the club secretary. Um, uh, effectively is the person who organizes pretty much everything. Um, so uh, Their role can be very, very expansive uh, from booking travel and accommodation for, for the team to um, managing different functions within the football club to player registration, admin regulation, all those sorts of things to make sure that all of the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and, and all those sorts of things. The problem was that the role of club secretary and a number of other emerging administrative roles in football were um, not maybe as clearly defined as they might have been, and um, club secretaries didn't potentially uh, or possibly have the kind of the level of understanding of the various functions of the football club that they, they might need to have. So in 1999, the university launched. Um, what was called the Certificate in Professional Sports Management and Administration Football. And that was uh, effectively uh, a year-long first-year undergraduate degree course for um, those individuals who were working in senior roles in football administration. To put it in simple terms, it was designed to help people run football clubs better, professional football clubs. To go onto the course, you had to be a member of one of the umbrella institutions under the LMA, so either a member of the Institute of Football Management Administration or the Professional Football Administrators Association. Uh, and you came onto the course. You effectively spent two years um, engaged in a programme with us, and then by the end of it, you would be able to go back to your football club and run it more effectively. That was our first, if you want, um, entree into into football education and, and and interestingly some 21 years later we still run that course today and that is the course that is widely regarded as the industry standard for football administrators and and now it because football administration has expanded so rapidly and so widely we get an incredibly broad range of, of learners come onto that course. Um, we've, even, you know, we've had chief executives of, of pro clubs, we get academy managers, uh, we get um, general administrators, all sorts of people who generally want to improve their prospects in regards to employment and professional football, but at the same time they, they also want to learn how to run their football club better. Um, that course um, had run successfully for, for a number of years when and football, professional football had continued to, to develop. And we started to then to have additional conversations with the uh, professional game and various individuals within it who came back to the university and said, you know, we, we've got another problem really in football now. But the problem is that football has changed significantly. Football clubs have become businesses um, and we're now in a position whereby the, you know, walking into a football club and the first question you were asked is, so whose nephew are you then? You know, those days were kind of waning and new roles were appearing in football and clubs needed young, enthusiastic, motivated, highly trained and educated people to go into those roles, but they just didn't know where they were going to come from. And it was at that point that we started to think about whether or not there might be the possibility possibility to actually develop undergraduate, full-scale, three-year undergraduate degrees in football studies. And then, to my mind, nobody had done this before. So, uh, a, um, a degree that sort of encompassed every potential component of employment, potential employment within football. So, it was back in... Um, 2001-2002 and I was working at the university back then that we sort of started to think about um, these football degrees. We launched the first football degree, BA on's in Football Studies in 2003 um, and then we subsequently launched a second BA Ons in what was at the time called Football Studies and Business in 2005. I remember distinctly in, in 2003, Um, when the football studies launched, I was sat in my car listening to BBC Radio 2, I think it was, and uh, the the story that had broken was that how low could universities stoop, uh, because somebody had just launched a degree in, as they referred to it, David Beckham studies. Um, And, you know, this kind of discussion of Mickey Mouse courses and so on um, emerged, Uh, And uh, I I questioned at that point in time whether or not we'd done the right thing, uh, and whether generally there was a market to to support this. I I needn't have worried, because you know now, some 17 years later, um, our model, if you want, in regards to football education, uh, has been replicated in various other places, both nationally and internationally. We've won. European acclaim from UEFA for the project work that we do in the area of football development as part of Greece. We've worked across the board with all of the major stakeholders in the game and our research arm has changed Premier League rules and Football League regulations. Uh, We've trained staff from all of the major stakeholders right the way up to FIFA and we've got over a hundred of our graduates working full-time. In Premier League and Football League clubs, some in some really quite senior roles now. So, um, yeah, so we came from nowhere to be almost everywhere, uh, and I think, um, and, I, and I think that's uh, something that makes all of us who work on the programme feel tremendously proud. Of.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting story. I imagine, as you said there, the uh, hearing that on the radio, you're kind of like, I'm not sure this is a good idea, but uh, I think. You know, that's people not giving something a chance, not necessarily liking change. But as you said, it seems like you're trying to make it more professional, which is... You know, trying to make the football industry more professional and catch up to a certain degree within business. One thing that you said uh, that really interested me there is that you had uh, chief execs and stuff come on um, and to help them run the club more efficiently or think about the processes they have. How do you assist them in that? Because obviously they're in quite a senior role anyway. You'd like to think that many of them know kind of what they should be doing, at least. Um, How does your course help them in in that endeavor?
1: It's. um... That's an interesting one because uh, certainly the, the higher level staff that we've worked with before, there's kind of a correlation with all of them, and all of them have come into their roles from outside of football, so it's uh, we do t- try to do two things, I guess, in regards to the course. One is it's split into six modules which focus on, if you want, six core components of the um, of football administration. So they stretch from the nuts and bolts of admin and regulation and, and, as, and the rules and regulations that apply to the Premier League and, and, and EFL competitions, but also we look at things like football and ICT and through that social media and, and so on and, and the, the um, implications of that for, for football clubs, both in terms of marketing a football club but also in terms of the destabilising effect that Players and staff can have if they use social media irresponsibly. But we also have a separate module that looks specifically at the relationship between football and media, and the way in which clubs can can use the media to to the benefit. But again, also the way in which the media have to be managed effectively in order to build good relationships. But then we've also got the those sort of structural components of law um, and of finance as well. So. If you're coming into football from outside of football, whilst football clubs are businesses, um, and in some ways like any other business, because they still have to adhere to the same accounting regulations and a lot of the same legal requirements and those sorts of things, they also operate, as you can imagine, as part of the entertainment industry. And therefore, um, sometimes the ways in which certain roles within a football club are applied can can be very different to, to other dare I say mainstream if you want businesses. So part of what we do is about kind of educating those people who come into football about the specific demands that, that football presents. But the second thing that we do um, as well is that it's about trying to provide this breadth. So if you come into a football club in a senior role or sometimes in any role, you often have a very narrow view of the specific area that, that you worked within. So. A lot of chief execs, for example, often come from finance backgrounds or or legal backgrounds. So they're often very good at the law, they're very good at the the finance, but maybe not so good at the stuff that relates to nuts and bolts regulation or the stuff that relates to to media. So the other thing that we try to do is to provide a sort of a a broad-based education that captures as much of the complexity of the various departments of the club as possible. And one of the things that I've certainly found Working on this program for for many many years is that the the better clubs, the better professional clubs, are those that operate off of a model of joined up thinking. So I've seen some really good examples of clubs where the the club is a is a cohesive unit, and everybody understands their role, from the person that makes the tea at the training ground to the first team captain. Everybody understands the contribution that they make to to the success of the of the club. I've also worked with some clubs that don't work that way at all and are a, a series of disparate components often based in very different parts of the city, for example, so you've got a training ground which is separate from a stadium staff which is separate from administrative staff who are in our office building somewhere else. They don't really talk to one another. They don't really understand the where they fit within your organization and as a consequence of that, you then see um, challenges emerging so for us it's also about as I say providing that um, that breadth of understanding so that you have an appreciation of the various um, constituent components of the football club and if you have those then you're in a better position in in my opinion to lead it
0: and within sorry within the football clubs would you say that the work that you do allows them to explore areas where they might need more help um the example i meant maybe used by that is the the common accusation if you like chucked at someone like ed woodward is that he's a businessman he's not a football man or something like that which you'll have some of that around the program you also have the other way where you're a football man and not necessarily a businessman do you think Going through your course help people understand that maybe you know what the legal stuff I really struggle with, so that might be a team member that I need to go and source from somewhere to assist me with that side. Is that a a process that helps through your course?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it actually, because um, you know you used Ed Woodward as as an example there, and now you know he or any other chief exec can't be expected to know. Absolutely everything about every single department. And I'm not suggesting, for example, if somebody comes in with a finance background, that we turn them into a lawyer or we turn them into a, a, a um, some form of football regulator or we make them an expert in media. But what we do do is give them a sensitivity to the challenges that exist within those various spheres. And I think that's the important thing, because, it, again, you know, to talk about good and bad practice that I've seen, you, know, you, you, you see some chief execs or, or, or senior people within football clubs who have a um, finite knowledge of a particular area, and they're great in that area, very, very good at managing the books, very, very good at making sure the player transfers um, from a legal perspective are, are are tied up and there are no mistakes, um, but they don't really have a great deal of interest in other things. They let somebody else get on with that. Of course, when you work in that way, you have to put a significant amount of trust those other people that they're doing their job right if you don't have any knowledge of what they are or should be doing then there has to be a significant amount of trust there if you are at least sensitive to the challenges that they might face if you are sensitive to the problems and the issues that exist as part of their daily work then it can make you a more empathetic leader Um, you can speak to them and have some sort of understanding of the challenge that they might face in the same way that they can have some sort of understanding of the challenge that that you might face. You know, it's really difficult in terms of that, in terms of football clubs, where you've got what we might refer to as the football and non-football side. So you've got, as we refer to it on the football degrees, you know, we've got football studies, which is predominantly on pitch. So it produces coaches, it produces analysts, football development officers, And then we've got the football business management, as it's now called, which is predominantly off pitch or behind the scenes. So marketing, commercial, HR, these sorts of things. Um, Again, I'll go back to my example that if you run a football club and those two things are seen as separate entities, I think you've probably got challenges. But if you've got... Um, a model in which the two are seen as being part of the same process and you've got people who understand the demands of the football side relative to those who understand the off-pick side you know they don't have to know everything but as long as they've got that sensitivity to the challenge which they can then instill with a certain amount of trust as well for me that's what we're trying to create in terms of our our model. We're trying to create people who who have a breadth of knowledge, not an expertise in everything, but a breadth of knowledge that provides them with a sensitivity to the the challenges of the various departments and recognise how those departments contribute to the whole.
0: Obviously, with you working on on this course and overseeing this course, your breadth of knowledge is going to be quite big in terms of you're going to understand the coaching side all the way through to the, the legal side and stuff. Has it changed the way that you see football or football teams or the way it's portrayed in the media because, I mean, you see a lot now on, on social media people will, you know, get onto teams about different areas. Has it changed your interaction with football teams and looking for more underlying meanings of what's being said?
1: It, it, unfortunately for me, I kind of, I, I, I always get highlighted to the things that are wrong because <laughs> people want fixes. Um, so, you know, my, my role is multi Multi sort of faceted, if you want, because I've got the I've got the teaching side, but I've then also got the research and consultancy um, role that that they also have. I mean, from from the teaching perspective, and I'll go back to exactly what I just said about about trust. Um, you know, you say that I've got this this sort of breadth of, of knowledge. Actually, my my knowledge is relatively finite. Um, from a management perspective, I know exactly what is going on in the in the program. Um, So, you know, I work with all of the various staff in regards to sort of structural processes in the overall area, but it's up to them to run and deliver those areas. Um, You know, I've got three fantastic A licensed coaches. Who deliver for me? I've I've got a level one. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be trotting out on the uh, on the pitch at any time soon to try and to try and do what they do. You know, I, I I did my level one to a certain extent because I wanted to have a greater awareness of of, of coaching. Uh, but at the same time, I also uh, I also wanted to just get a sense of what it's like to be a student at our football centre. So I did I did a, my level one with our students to 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 get that sense of what it was like. Um, but it's up to them to go out, put the boots on, and, and, and to, to deliver that, and I and I trust them to do that. Similarly, with the, the football development um, area, we've got three fantastic former football development officers who uh, work within the football development area, uh, and again, you know, there are some connections between my work and football development, but I leave them to, to get on with, with that. Same with the psychologists. My work is, is, is largely around context, if you want. So um my PhD is in is in sociology but I've I studied at loughborough and and, and and my specific PhD research all related to elite elite sport because I've, I've been involved in elite sport for all of my adult life if you want um, and, and football for the last sort of 14 15 years uh, but yeah it's um, it, it's it, it, for me it's about having that kind of having that kind of breadth of knowledge but but being able to to trust if you want the staff to be able to deliver within those um within those specific areas
0: would running a football club interest you
1: um it's a it's a good question um I mean I think there's quite a lot of value that potentially I could add on the basis of the experience that I I've, I've got whether or not I would actually want to work within that environment, um, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, as I say, I, I see a lot of the things. I get highlighted to a lot of the things that are wrong with with football clubs. Um, and interestingly, of course, I didn't answer your question there about you know how it's affected my relationship with with football. You know, there are there are things I absolutely love about football still um and uh, and and I love being involved in the game all the way from the from the grassroots you know working with my with my son's team all, all the way up to the work that I do with the professional clubs um but there are there are an awful lot of things in professional football that that I don't like um, and I, I don't think are um, I, I I don't think are' wrong well or,
0: like what? Or um
1: I was just having a conversation yesterday um, with somebody very senior in the game uh, about the challenge that money still presents and I think you know, Covid has highlighted that when you've got clubs that are um, laying off significant numbers of, uh, of staff but at the same time are then spending billions of pounds in the transfer window. I think things such as that. Um, I think some of the things that I see in regards to uh, transition for academy players and certainly in terms of um, the things that they go on and do after they've been released from clubs and the support that's available to them, I think there are challenges there. And my research at the moment predominantly relates to the relationship between football and mental illness. Uh, And I think that whilst change is coming, it's coming slowly and there is still a huge amount of work that uh, the professional game needs to do to uh, support professional players um, and academy players in regards to their, to their mental health.
0: Cool. So I guess this is quite a good time um, to pigeonhole into that and to turn your research into your PhD. So what exactly is it? What does it look like? I guess what are you currently learning, I guess?
1: So, so my um, sort of research background over the last uh, probably near 20 years now has been in the area of elite sport and migration. So, so effectively, um, I look at the, the reasons why um, elite athletes leave one country uh, to seek employment in another. Um, the lived experiences, if you want, of foreign players. So what it's like to be a foreign player living and working in a, in a foreign place. And then the effects of those foreign players, predominantly in terms of indigenous talent development. So many years ago, when I studied for my PhD, um, I was involved in a, in a study that initially was looking at uh, British basketball. Um, I was a former basketball player, so I had a lot of connections um, in, the, in the game. Um, and I used those as part of a study, which was um, predominantly designed to to look at the effects of the import of American migrants into into British basketball, and the effect that that was having on indigenous talent development, leading towards the um, London 2012 Olympics, because because we were the host, uh, uh, well, London was the host city of the 2012 Olympics, of course. Uh, the GB basketball team qualified uh, for the for the competition, something I they'd never done before. But the, the concern was that there would not be a sustainable Olympic programme because there weren't enough young British players playing in the British leagues because all of the places were taken up by Americans. Now, you may already be making those kind of um, connections to... Similar sort of arguments that exist in in English football and the number of foreign players that are employed in Premier League squads, for example, and the ways in which that potentially acts to the detriment of, of young English talent. So, um, you know, I finished my my PhD back in uh, 2006 and and came to Solent shortly thereafter, and effectively took the the knowledge. And the experience I had of working in one elite sport environment and, and applied started to apply in, in football and started to look at whether or not similar sorts of challenges existed in football. And firstly, you know, I was kind of interested in why certain foreign players came to England. You know, there's this misconception it's always about money. Money is one part of it, but in fact it's a much more complex picture. I was interested in the what it was like being a foreign player living in England, and what the support mechanisms were like for foreign players. I was also interested in English players who went abroad and what it was like for them. And then, as I said, I was, I was interested in this whole kind of um, context of whether or not foreign players... Um, and their involvement in the Premier League particularly did actually act to the detriment of young English talent, did they block the developmental pathway. I was fortunate enough in 2008 to be commissioned by the Premier League to, um, to get involved in a project working with them, looking at some of the, the data that they held in regards to player registrations, but at the same time um, also um, engaging in a subsidiary project, which looked at um, various aspects of the academy system um, at the time. Um, interestingly, when we reported on that um, after 18 months, a number of the uh, things that we'd identified as challenges within the academy system were subsequently picked up. I don't, I don't think it was picked up because of our, 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 um, our specific research, but they were picked up. Um, through supplementary work that was done as part of the research which ultimately led to the introduction of the P. So um, in some ways that was good because we obviously had that validation that the things that we found we thought were problematic, the Premier League had also identified as problematic and then had proposed solutions to. Um, but my research over the last sort of few few years, if you want, has developed very much along that that kind of that kind of line. So I've, I've worked with various teams and leagues across Europe. So I've looked at things like the ways in which migrants are recruited through networks in the Norwegian top league. Um, I've worked with um, ex Premier League players who have gone to various leagues across Europe to establish what it's like for them moving out of England and moving into other places. Um, I've uh, Worked with uh, a number of other leagues and teams in regards to projects that look at the lived experience of lived experiences of migrants in particular places, and that's kind of then led me to my most recent research, which is this research which kind of connects migration to the concept of, of mental health. Uh, I um, I worked with a former Premier League um, and Serie A player a few years ago. He's a good friend of mine, um, a guy called Vincent Pericar. Um, Vincent um, originally grew up playing in the Academy of Saint-Étienne in, in France He subsequently was was signed by Juventus um, and, and made his debut for Juventus um, against Arsenal in the Champions League For one reason or another um, His career at Juventus didn't work out And he ended up being transferred to, to Portsmouth Who were subsequently promoted um, during his time there to the Premier League he then left Portsmouth um, and was transferred to Stoke and was promoted to the Premier League with them as well. But behind the scenes, what people didn't know is that Vincent was um, was suffering from depression. And arguably, the depression was brought on by the conditions of his employment, in particularly in England. Uh, and one of the things that we know about sort of research in this area is that elite sports environments can actually create the conditions for the development of mental illness. And and this was something that I wanted to explore with Vanson, where he and I have known each other for more than a decade. Um, And he was a really interesting case study. And and, uh, I spent eight years effectively with him working on various different programs and and interviewing him about his experiences as a a professional athlete and the way in which football had contributed to the deterioration of his mental health, which ultimately forced him out of the game at 28. And it was remarkable the story and also the the way in which it wasn't just his story. It was the the story of many um, young players who had um, not coped with the demands, if you want, of living in a foreign place, but also working in a particular elite sports environment. The The paper that I, I've, I've written in regards to that was actually just published um, a couple of months back. And, and I think there are sort of far-reaching consequences there for professional football I've got a number of other projects ongoing at the moment specifically looking for example at the effect that international transfers have on the potential risk to mental illness and I think that's kind of the area that I'm most interested in at the moment because I think this is an area which is really important for for professional football clubs some clubs are beginning to to do more in this area lots are not but I don't think the professional game as a whole recognizes the scale of the problem that could potentially exist uh, at the moment. And it doesn't actually take a huge amount of effort. It won't take a huge amount of effort to significantly change things, but it will take some different ways of thinking for the game. Um, and that's kind of you know, one of the key things, if you want, from my research is that doing research is, is, is great, it's interesting, but at the same time it's got to have impact. And for me, um, I think if I can make a positive contribution to the um, – the, the number of cases of, of, of mental illness in professional football, then that will be the ultimate, if you want, test of whether or not my research has been successful.
0: Okay, so the first thing, if people wanted to go and find that research, where could they do it? Because I think, obviously, this is an important topic and also sounds like an interesting topic which people within a football background would want to know. So if they wanted to find it, where could they find it?
1: Well, the obvious thing to do is simple Google search to start with. Um, the, the full paper people have to pay for but fortunately the way that we work in universities nowadays means that the draft versions for example have to be made available um, free so people can get hold of it via the university. Uh, so it, The best thing to do is if they just type into Google Richard Elliott football, I'll, I'll ping up, um, they can click on um, any number of links on there, probably the best one is to click on my staff profile, it's listed on there, they'll see the full title of the paper and from that they'll be able to then do a another Google image search or be able to, to find it and they can access it, download it and do whatever they want with it from uh, from there on.
0: Perfect. And then the next question is what factors or what key factors did you find out um, were, I guess, real triggers for that kind of mental health issues?
1: In, in Vassal's case, it was um, firstly the conditions of, of his migration. Um, so the reason why he transferred, um, he became embroiled in, 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 broiled, um, in uh, a situation which I won't go into now, but you can read about in regards to the to the paper. Um, but yeah, he became embroiled in a situation with one of the club's directors. So effectively, he was he was forced to leave Juventus when he didn't want to. And one thing that we know about migration is that forced migration often leads to um, worse outcomes than voluntary migration because it often happens quickly, you don't have any control over it, and you can often, in a a football context, you can end up somewhere where you've not chosen to be. So that was the first thing. The the second thing is his his physical transfer was not managed well. So he arrived in, in England and the the club to to whom he transferred provided very very little support to him he didn't speak a word of english he wasn't provided with an english tutor and that's a massive thing for foreign players if you can't speak the language it makes life very very difficult indeed Uh, they didn't provide him with any accommodation so they put him in a hotel where he lived for four months on his own isolated he's away from his He's on his own, he's away from his family, he's away from his friends, he's in a foreign place, he doesn't speak the language. He wasn't guided um, in regards to uh, the culture of English football, if you want, which is different from Italian football or French football, where he'd been before. He wasn't guided financially, he was pretty much just left to 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 get on. And of course, the, the, the problem is that for a player of, of, of North's calibre, who had been transferred from, from Juventus, he played in the Champions League, there was a very high expectation by his teammates and the fans. So, when the depression began to get on top of him and there were physical manifestations of that, it meant that he couldn't perform to the level that he was used to. He was suffering from bouts of fatigue. He didn't want to go to training in the morning. He wanted to lock himself away. Um, so, his performances deteriorated. Of course, as soon as his performances deteriorated, then the fans started getting on him, the media started getting on him, his teammates were, were getting on him, he was, wasn't making as many appearances, he was dropped to the bench, he was dropped out of the squad. All of these things then exacerbated the challenge that he was facing and the biggest thing was he couldn't talk to anybody about it. This is one of the biggest challenges that exists within football because there is a stigma attached to, to mental illness generally but in elite football environments that stigma is, is magnified. As he said, you know, he couldn't go to the manager and say, "Look, I'm sorry Gaffer, I'm not, I'm not feeling very well, I'm feeling down, I need to see someone. Because he felt that the risk was he'd be dropped, he wouldn't be resigned, he wouldn't get a new contract and then he's out of the game, which ultimately happened anyway. I think this is the fear for a lot of players um, within the game, is that they can't show any sort of weakness because they're afraid of the ramifications that that might have. Because the manager's job is to win games. You know, every manager is potentially only eight games away from sack. So, you know, can he risk having um, a player in the in the dressing room that is 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 not going to be able to perform, um, or who maybe um, bringing other players down with him? I don't know. But there's just no time. Um, in, in football, for these sorts of things, and clubs have not been great at providing anonymous safe spaces for players to be able to go to and say, "Look, this is this is happening without the fear of the of the of the repercussions that might occur." As I say, some clubs are, are doing that. You know, Southampton, for example, are a club that have um, introduced or are beginning to introduce mechanisms to allow players to be able to talk about their their mental illness, but it's still very hard. And it's very hard for men generally as well. You know, if we're talking about young men here who, uh, again, find it difficult to talk about their emotions. So there are a lot of things against football in the context of being able to talk about mental illness. But it's something that absolutely has to be raised as, a, as an issue because otherwise we're going to lose other other players. Um are going to lose their careers to this sort of thing, and then in the worst possible cases, you know, you've got examples of players like Robert Enke in Germany, who, who ultimately took his took his own life. So that's absolutely what we want to avoid um, in 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 any circumstances possible.
0: I guess the first question is why is this, or what is the issues around men addressing this type of thing, and then I guess leading on from that, is it. In the industry, is there areas you think that we could improve just to help it even a little bit?
1: I think the first question that you probably need to ask a behavioural psychologist, because you're probably going back over thousands of years of the ways in which men's and women's brains have developed cognitively. Um, I mean, what we do know is that the women are far, far better at talking about their emotions, Um, At being open with one another, and there's certainly a huge amount of clinical evidence to suggest that's the that's the case. Um, Men are not very good at talking about about their emotions. It's something to do with the with machismo. It's something to do with um, that idea of always having sort of a hard front, if you want. And in football, that's even even more so. You know, there is this there is this um, concept of the of the hard front. So always presenting this kind of particular sort of work ethic, always um, showing sort of mental strength, if you want, psychological strength. So, you know, football gets it even more so than, than sort of general life, if you want. Um, and this is why uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that elite athletes are... Um, more exposed to the likelihood of suffering from mental illness than members of the general population, simply because of the kind of environments in which elite athletes work don't lend themselves to manifestations of, of weakness. You know, we, we talk about the very, the very um, opposite of that in elite sport. We talk about mental toughness. You have to be mentally tough to be able to deal with the challenges of being an, an elite athlete, the ups, the downs, um, winning, losing, playing, not playing, injury, retirement, all these kind of things, but um, in the context of um, in the context of mental illness, the, the two are not compatible. You know, it's not compatible to show mental toughness, but at the same time be talking about mental weakness, which is what some people view mental illness um, as. To answer the the second part of the question, in terms of what more can the clubs do, the recommendation that I made, um, or I have made currently in regards to the paper, is that clubs need to offer safe spaces. With suitably qualified professionals within them, where players can go and talk about their mental health without the risk of stigmatization that often goes with it. So, in Vincent's case, for example, uh, he was at Stoke City when he got introduced to um, a psychologist that was working with the club, a guy called John Duncan. Um, and John was. Um, sort of had a client confidentiality clause, if you want, with players. So when a player went to spoke to him, he, he, he couldn't then go to the manager and say, look, this lad's come to me, and I think he's got depression, so you might want to think about it in the context of, of your squad selection. He, he he was there so that players could go and speak to him about challenges that they might be facing, and it could be a full range of different challenges, There could be performance-related psychology, but in Vanson's case it was very much about, look, I, I'm, 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 I'm having these problems and this is the way they're affecting me, and very quickly he was diagnosed as suffering from, from depression. Uh, where Vanson was in his career at that point in time, it was too difficult, too late for him to be able to, to resurrect his career. Uh, and, and ultimately ended up leaving Stoke and falling out of the game not, not long after that. But if you ask Vincent about the importance of his relationship with John Duncan, he'll tell you that John saved his life, because Vincent had got to the stage where he was contemplating suicide, and whilst he never acted upon the, uh, the thoughts that he was having, the risk is that had he not been introduced to somebody who he could talk to in confidence without risk of judgment, who knows what would have what would have happened. So I think if clubs have got suitably qualified professionals that, that players can talk to and they can be treated in confidence as well, away from the risk of stigmatisation or the effects it might have on their contract, then that is a good starting point. But that's not easy to do, I have to say. And, and quite how we would do that, well, that's I haven't quite got that far in the research yet to, to sort of suggest how it could work. But clubs need to be aware. Um, of the of the challenges that elite sports and elite football environments present, um, the way they can manage those and the systems and mechanisms they can put in place to protect the um, the mental health of their employees.
0: Well, I mean, hopefully your research provides a bit of a turning point for that. I mean, we've had cases, as you said, Robert Enker there. You look at someone like Gary Speed a little bit later on who has similar issues. I know Clark Carlisle has been very forthcoming in terms of his struggles, which is good. Um, for more... I'm trying to word this nicely, if you like. For more cynical fans who might turn around and say, what are they worried about? They get paid to run around a pitch and earn a load of money to do so. What would your response to that be?
1: Yeah, that's a really simple one. Um, And that's that mental illness doesn't discriminate. It it doesn't discriminate on the basis of wealth. It doesn't discriminate on the basis of of gender. It doesn't discriminate on the basis of race. Um, It can affect... Absolutely anybody, and it's interesting that you use that as an example because um, I remember when I was working with with Vincent and he'd been interviewed by one of the um, daily newspapers. I think the headline they ran was something along the lines of "So now we're supposed to feel sorry for millionaire footballers," um, and you know it was really disappointing because the, the the story completely discounted the fact that you know mental illness can affect anybody. In the same way that, that, that cancer can, you know, cancer doesn't discriminate. Rich people can get cancer, poor people can get cancer. It, it, it just doesn't matter. The The bottom line is that we identify appropriate mechanisms by, by which to treat it. Um, because I think often fans don't have an awareness. There may be this, this naive perception that if you're earning 80 grand, 100 grand a week, that that just must instantly make you happy. Uh, I don't think they understand the demands of what it is to be uh, an, an elite athlete. Um, I don't think they understand the pressure that comes with being an elite athlete. And more than anything else, I think often they lose sight of the fact that these are just men. Um, and that man is someone's son son. Maybe someone's brother. It's often just daddy, um, and you know when you. I, I've, I've worked with players before with some some stories I could tell you of, of players getting on top of um, fans getting on top of players, and then kids being bullied at school because dad's not you know performing on the pitch or, or whatever. And I think people lose sight of the fact that you know, for all the hype and the money that they see for the the Premier League players at the top. These are just men. And of course, the other thing I would say as well is that we tend to focus on the top. We tend to look at the Premier League where the big salaries are and the, for the for the biggest superstars, you know, their celebrities and so on. But you've got to remember that those salaries and the, the bright lights, they fade very quickly as you come down the divisions. So, you know, the championship is very different from the Premier League. Once you get to League One, League Two, you know, it's a hard grind for for players who are in those kind of areas and that they've got all the additional concerns of paying the bills every month and then realizing that they've got a limited shelf life and their career, if, you know, if they have a good career, will end at you know, mid-30s and then they're going to have to do something else and what are they going to do? Maybe they haven't got a lot of education. So again, we almost come full circle, don't we? We come back to this kind of how do you reinvent these individuals through education so that they can go on and and achieve other, other things. It's very easy to focus on the top sort of few percent of those players who who are um, genuine celebrities and earn enough within their careers that they'll never need to worry about money again. Even they are not immune from uh, from the uh, risks of mental illness, but they are only a very small population relative to a much larger one. Um, all of whom can be affected in the same way.
0: I think it's interesting. I know, um, obviously, I follow basketball. Relatively closely. I know Danny Green from the LA Lakers recently came out and said after his shooting performance, I think in game five, him and his girlfriend had death threats from LA fans saying obviously not good enough and stuff. And I I, I understand fans thing of going, yeah, it'd be lovely to have £80,000 a week and all that type of stuff but probably the understanding of not realising you've also got 60,000 fans when you're away from home giving you a load of stick and stuff and how that can affect you on top of all the other pressures that you're in a dressing room with 25 other people, you want to compete because you want to play, you're all looking for contracts, all that type of stuff. It's quite an in- interesting industry and I, I think it's interesting that we're changing from maybe the the hard be hard-nosed, be, you know, um, kind of don't talk about your problems to now we're beginning to get to a stage where players are actually coming and talking about the difficulties they're having. Um, I guess linking back to one of the things you mentioned earlier, which is the use of media. um, How do you think we could better use the media to support this type of action or to kind of, better show give fans a better understanding because like you go to that headline there that's unhelpful for someone who's probably reached out is low anyway and he's thinking actually i'm going to trust someone to put my side across this would be helpful how could we better use the media to give players stories more accurately
1: yeah i mean the media is tremendously problematic um and not just in the context of of mental illness but but a lot of other things um you know I, i i go I immediately think about Raheem Sterling, for example, and the way in which he is or has been portrayed in the in the media um, and you know the the agenda that they are they are following. Um, I also think about social media. In the context of Danny Green there, you know, you, you you're talking about the, the, the threats that he had, you know, the, the, the risks that social media present and the ability that everybody seems to have a voice on social media, everybody's voice is the loudest voice. nobody agrees to disagree with anybody any longer everybody's right and if you want to communicate with an elite athlete, be it Premier League footballer or NBA star you you, you have a mechanism by which to do this now, you you can do it via Twitter you can contact people by different social um, networks and so on and and I think that's tremendously um, dangerous Uh, I, I have a uh, a friend who's a an, an ex Premier League player who I know absolutely gets um, destroyed on on social media still regularly, um, and you know he's not got anybody managing his social media accounts. He picks up his phone, he clicks on things, and he sees them, and he sees what people are saying about him, his family, his children, and and, and all sorts of other things, and and inevitably that's gonna that's gonna have a, an effect on people. If we're talking though about the sort of the, the larger scale, if you want the kind of a, the, the mass media, it's a really tricky one because because ultimately they are driven by um, circulation in terms of getting people to buy their publications um, or to look at their websites or to, to watch their their programs. So sometimes saying those kind of inflammatory things that's what improves that circulation. They also um, are very good at attuning the climate of public opinion. So in that respect, um, they like telling people what to think, the media, and therefore if their agenda is that you, know, you shouldn't feel sorry for Premier League, these Premier League players who earn you know, two million pounds plus on average a year, um, how can they possibly be sad, you know, you have to go out to work every day on a on a building site or work in a hairdresser, you know, how how you shouldn't feel sorry for them. Um, and we're going to do this, you know, sort of opinion piece uh, on it to show you how we're, we're right. It, it's, it, it's difficult. Um, I don't see a huge amount of responsible reporting in the media. Um, a lot of it is, as I say, inflammatory, it's sensationalised, it's often inaccurate. You, you would kind of hope perhaps that it's up to the footballing authorities and the clubs maybe to, to do more, to raise the the profile of mental illness in a, in a general sense, but also in regards to their own employees and playing staff. You know, football clubs through their foundations and community departments are very good at working with fans in regards to, to mental illness, particularly again, guys, and men's health. Because again, we know that beyond mental health, men are just generally really poor at going to the doctor um, and having things checked out relative to, to women. And, and I've worked on... A couple of programs um, in in football, whereby football has been used as the anchor by which to get men to think more so about their health. But that's you know the fans. Um, when it comes to the players, maybe the clubs, maybe the maybe the stakeholders need to be doing more to raise awareness with the fans that you know these are still human beings um, and. They should be treated with respect irrespective of how well they performed on a given Saturday, irrespective of whether or not you are fighting for a Champions League place where so it looks like you're gonna get relegated. You know, those those guys um, need to be recognized for for who they are, as opposed to being held up as some sort of always happy multi-millionaire who is looking down on everybody else simply because they've achieved something that millions of people would love to do be a professional footballer and and they have done it and and others haven't
0: I think there's three I've got three really interesting bits to come into this I don't know whether you saw it I saw it floating around funny enough on social media a little while ago but uh, Roma actually um, did a recreation of uh, a chance that one of their players missed with a fan and you said I can't believe he missed that and, thing. and you saw the guy do it and he fell over <laughs> and I thought it's brilliant because you've got a guy who's on t- Twitter I think given the fan, to be fair, g- given the player but bit, this wasn't nasty, it was just how did he miss it type of thing although it wasn't nasty but in front of forty 000, fifty thousand 50,000 people he kind of saw what the lights are and you'd hope that that would kind of rearrange his his um, behaviour moving forward. But I thought that was quite a clever way of trying to say to their fans, listen, let's not, let think about what you're actually saying because, you know, you, you probably can't <laughs> to a certain degree. Also, I, I think...
1: I, um, I would say on that as well, that Roma are absolutely brilliant with with their social media and the way in which they they work with it, they they they've got a very talented team, obviously of people who work in that. They come up with these quite novel novel ways. But you're right, that's a really good way of saying, okay, you think you could do better? Well, let's see. And then it kind of shows others that you know maybe we need to think a little bit more carefully about what we what we say if we want to think these things. Okay, but maybe we keep them to ourselves because. You know, it's easy to think that, you know, you could do better than the manager. It's easier to think that, you know, you could have finished from the 18-yard box when the player missed, it, all these sorts of things. But, the, you know, the realities day-to-day are actually very different.
0: I also think um, a programme that I, I saw recently was Social Dilemma on Netflix, which I think is really interesting on this topic, how the, the apps and stuff have been creative. And one of the things that probably stood out to me was they – feed you negative comments or negative articles, because that's what you're more likely to engage with, things that you disagree with. So like you're saying there in times of newspapers running that headline, because it's automatically a negative, is something that will sell more papers. And I'd really encourage anyone to go and watch that Social Dilemma documentary, because I think that it um, really highlights some of the major issues with social media. From the people that created it, saying that I now don't use it because it ropes me in, um I don't know if you've seen it, yeah yeah I have um and I think for me it it kind of
1: highlighted just just how dangerous um social media can be and it was I was going to make that point actually that you just made there that it's it's interesting how many of the leading figures in regards to the invention of these social media platforms either do not themselves use them or do not allow their children to use them. And yet they rely, of course, on millions, if not billions, of, of, of young people um, worldwide uh, for the revenues that these very platforms generate.
0: Yeah, I think if, if people haven't watched it, I definitely think it's something to have a look at because I think it was really interesting to see the way that it does prompt and probe you to go on to a site and and whatnot. And I guess the last thing, and this this is a bit more of a positive, I guess, after the last two, which is um, I thought England going into the World Cup did a really good job with exposing the players to the media and the dialogue they had back and forth. And one of the things that I thought was really beneficial is that they had slightly longer interviews with the players. um, And it seemed like in my personal opinion anyway, it began to humanise him a little more. Even someone like Fabian Delph, who went home for the birth of his child. Um, So how do you think there's a place for players and, and coaches having slightly longer forms or longer interviews so that people get to know them rather than what they assume this player who's signed for £19 million pounds from wherever looks like. Do you think that that would be beneficial?
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And, and, I, and, and like probably a lot of people listening, one of the things that I lose hours to in the evenings is I, I love going onto YouTube and then watching the kind of the behind-the-scenes type videos from clubs. So I've just been watching um, the uh, Cycling GK um, which is with Ben Foster, uh, and it's yeah, just interesting. It's, it's his own vlog that he that he does, um, and it's just interesting just seeing him just just doing stuff, getting a sort of a sense for what it's like sort of behind the scenes. Um, but I think that's tremendously powerful. Either players doing it themselves or their clubs doing it. When when the clubs do it, it tends to be slightly more manicured, if you know what I mean. It's it's. Um, you can see that it's been produced in a particular kind of way. I quite like it when the when the players themselves, you know, they're quite good. There was some Going back to the NBA, there was some great stuff um, that uh, a player for the Lakers called JaVale McGee did from within the bubble, and it was just him with his mobile phone. It was like life within the bubble, which, you know, this is how terrible the food is they're trying to feed us. This is how lonely it is living in a hotel in Walt Disney World where we've been for the last sort of three months. His daughter, that he hasn't seen for a couple of weeks, turns up, um, and they try to have a day out. And it's absolutely throwing it down with rain. You know all the usual kind of problems that I guess regular families have, but in this strange world in which elite athletes work. So I think those kind of things are really important because it it gives um, it gives fans, if you want, and, and, and it's sort of a bit of an insight into into what it's like. Don't get me wrong, the players have to be really careful with this kind of stuff as well. Um, so they need to make sure that they are, if they're the arbiter, if you want of the content, they need to be sure that what is going out there does reflect them in the right way, and they're not coming off in, in a way that might actually work in a in a negative sense. But you, you're absolutely right, though, as well about England going into the last World Cup, because there was a lot of managing of expectations that went on through the through the FA, of course. Um, you know, there's a, there's, there's a few things that went very well in regards to that, that program of activity. Uh, firstly, England started to um, show the content from St George's Park in regards to the lead-up for training. So you could see the players training, you could see them a little bit behind the scenes, you could get a sense, a little bit of sense for what it was, what it was like for them. Um, but I think, singly, one of the most important things was the relationship that um, Gareth Southgate um, the interviews that he did and the relationships that he was able to sort of the relationship he was able to build with with England fans and the the, the way in which he acted as a, a conduit, if you want, between the team and the nation and some of the things that he said that kind of positioned football, if you want, in respect So he was talking about Brexit at one point in time. He was talking about other sort of um, social. And, and, and economic challenges which were ongoing. I remember he, talked about, he was talking about race in the context of Raheem Sterling, and you might remember the, uh, the new, one of the newspapers had focused on a tattoo that he had and his father and was trying to, exactly as you say, was trying to bring out negative-based stories to generate a reaction. Um, Gareth was, was very good, and I suspect, I say Gareth, but I suspect the media team at the FA were very, very good at... Um, at using Gareth uh, as as a media through which there could be a connection to nation um, and a connection to the fans and 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 England went into of course that World Cup with probably one of the lowest expectations that they had for a long time. We used to go into every major tournament at the same as the golden generation and then before that it was something else and you know we should if we don't win this you know there's something's gone wrong and then you know you struggle to get out the group or you're out in the second round again or something like that. So of course what a semi-final uh, appearance was seen as a massive overachievement, even though I think the the, the bookies probably had um, England get into the quarters, but they came back, um, I think as a team reinvented, and that a lot of that came down to the way in which the FA's media team had managed the way in which the 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 team were presented to England fans and the nation more broadly.
0: Yeah, and no, I think that you know being skillful in that area is definitely something that can be can be helpful. And I also think that um, I thought about it last night. Jurgen Klopp, I think on Tuesday was a bit spiky in a press conference to one of the journalists and said something along the lines of, "Are you even a journalist?" And I thought about it and I was like, if that was Mourinho, for example, I think that would have got a lot of bad press. But because Klopp also has this side to him which is very jovial, he's friendly with fans and that gets portrayed in the media, I think that actually he gets a a free hit every now and again. Whereas Mourinho, it's almost like everyone's on their seat going, when's he going to go, when's he going to go? And I think that, um, yeah, there needs, needs to be some some care I guess on on how people portray and I guess the big thing for me particularly in kind of these longer form discussions or longer interviews is you if they're unedited or barely edited most people in the world you'll find common ground with so it might be someone like Raheem Sterling I'll be honest I'm not really really familiar with his background but it might be that you grow up in the same area as London as him or I know he had challenges regarding his parents it might be that you know you came from a similar city or you got some similar number of siblings or similar kids and all of a sudden you go oh okay there are differences in our life but there are also aspects that are very similar as well and I think that that's something that would would hopefully challenge the social media behavior when you feel like you've got something in common with people you're less likely to attack them
1: yes i think uh, and and i would agree with that um of course the i think the challenge here is that with any form of celebrity i think people seem to think that they know that person and they make judgments on the basis of what is presented to them in the media and, of course, what you've got to remember is that what's often presented in the media is is mediated. It is somebody somebody has chosen to edit that in a particular way. Somebody has chosen this photograph. Somebody has chosen this headline. And there's an agenda. And... Uh, I don't don't think people recognize that Um, in the context of of race in football, it's kind of really clear that you can often see the way in which players from black and minority ethnic backgrounds are presented in the media relative to white footballers. Um, And, you know, these things are sometimes um, based on racial profiling. They're sometimes based on institutional racism. They're they're often based on people just wanting to increase circulation. Um, And of course, when somebody is presented in a particular way, you know somebody is trying to make you believe a particular person has a particular persona. So, you know, you, if you think about it, I'll, I'll go back to an example from quite a few years ago, actually. But if you think about David Beckham, um, and if you go back to the the um, I think it was the '98 World Cup, wasn't it, when he got sent off against Argentina? When he, uh, I think it was Diego Simeone that he kicked out against. And, you know, before he'd been a hero before then, um, you know, David Beckham was the was was the wonder kid, of course. But I remember the, the headline the following day, I think it was in the Daily Mirror, which was 10 brave lions, one stupid boy. And people were burning effigies of David Beckham in the street 24 hours later. And then, of course, he reinvented himself again. Um, and very rarely do you ever see that happen. It, you know, use the example there of Jose Mourinho. Similar was Jose. You know he's he's the well, he's a bit like a pantomime villain to a certain extent. You know I think people love him. Some people love to hate him. Um, but he used to get away with quite a lot. But then after the incident at, at Chelsea, when he lost the dressing room, he lost his job there. I think then he he seemed to lose some of the some of the shine maybe that he had. Then he had that sort of barren period. He's never quite reinvented himself in the, in the way that perhaps he would have liked to. But I still think there's an awful lot of people that have a soft spot for shows in Mourinho. But Jürgen Klopp, is, you, you've absolutely kind of made the best example there. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to meet Jürgen. And he is he, he, he is in person, the way he comes across when you see him in, in, uh, on the TV and other ways. You know, he's incredibly personable. He he makes you feel as if you've known him for for many years, um, and uh, he's, he's very charming and he's very funny, and and in my opinion that is all very carefully crafted. Um, for the a certain amount of it will be him, a certain amount of it will be his personality, but there's also a certain amount of it which I think will will also be. Um, sort of a, a crafted persona that he knows works in terms of engaging him with fan groups. So if you if you look, for example, at the ways in which he manifested his relationships while he was at Dortmund, um, the man of the people, um, then and you look at the way he is, you know, in, in, in Liverpool. Remember one of the first things he ever turned up to in Liverpool he turned up wearing a Beatles T-shirt. I mean, you know, if you want to, if you want to connect yourselves to the people of Liverpool then you connect yourself to those things that are important to them obviously it helps you know if you can win a title after 30 years as well that's certainly going to endear you to them but at the same time he gets it you know he kind of understands um, the, the the sort of the, the people's perspective the fans perspective and that's why I think he um, he manages himself his persona and so on um, in that way and that's why of course it's, you say he gets away with stuff. So I didn't see the particular example, but yeah, you know, he he, he gets away with it. Um, he can be prickly with a with a um, with a journalist, and people will you know won't go, oh, Jürgen again. He's a miserable guy. Or whatever, they'll, they'll 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 let him get away with it because it's, it's it's Jürgen, and he's got that big smile, and
0: he's the man of the people. No, I, th- I think it is very interesting, uh, very interesting the way it's used and the way people are um, personified, etc. Um, kind of looping back, because this is a question I was going to ask and we've got sidetracked a little bit. If you had like a plan A so or A star example of how to take care of a player who's come across from a foreign country um, into a, a new league, a new setting, what would that look like?
1: So, there has to be quite a lot of pre planning. Um, Let's assume it's a player at one of the top divisions because that's going to be a very different relationship.
0: The agent for a start is crucial. Um, You know, agents, and again, you
1: know, fans often don't recognize what agents do. Um, Agents do get involved in the financial negotiations, the contractual negotiations for players' transfers, but they should also be effectively a very, very good PA they should be managing that, that that player's life to a certain extent to make sure that they don't have to worry about anything much other than playing football. So the club needs to be um, on point with the agent very early on to establish what the agent's going to do and what the club needs to do. Um, it's then a series of, if you want, quite practical arrangements that that need to be that need to be made. If a player is moving to a country, for example, in which they don't speak the language, then that's one of the first arrangements that need to be made um, for high-intensity one-to-one language tutoring, so that they can pick up um, at the very least the the basic football lingo. But then beyond that, they are able to manage their life day to day. You know, it's 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 remarkable how it's the little things that kind of make a difference to players. So for example, it's things like mobile phone contracts. You know, can they can they sort that out so their mobile phone, they know their mobile phone's gonna work effectively. Um, does their network provider provide roaming service when they're out, do they need to get a new mobile? How do they do that? Which companies provide in a particular, um, which companies provide in a particular country? Um, where are they gonna live? You know, can we can we sort this out so we're not staying in a hotel? really quickly, you know, um, can they move straight into some form of accommodation, is it close to the training ground, all this, all this sort of stuff. Um, bank accounts. One of the biggest things for players is how are they getting paid, can it be paid into this account, um, how does that work from a tax perspective if it's going out of the country, do I need to have a, uh, an account in the UK. Um, communication with family and friends, are they coming across? Can I bring my wife? Can I bring my children? What about schools? Where are my kids going to go to school? Um, what are the schools like? What's my wife going to do? Is there a network for my wife? Are there other players who come from the country I come from? Or you know, for example, like Latin Americans? Are there other Latin Americans um, so that, that our wives can meet? It's it's all those kind of little things. That make uh, that make a massive difference. It's not. It's not even about once they get to the training ground and they get on the pitch. That for them is often where they find their solace. That's where they where they feel most at home. That's the, the easy part. If you want, it's all the other things. And, and let me just give you an example, actually, to go back to to Jose Mourinho. I was at a dinner with Jose um, quite a few years ago now. He he left Chelsea, um, so he was. Um, he was managing Spain, and um, he was asked at this uh, at this dinner. And said, do you, "Do you think you'd ever come back to to Chelsea?" And at the point, he said, "I would love to, but I don't think it'll ever happen." And the person followed up and said, "Well, well, why?" And of course, yeah, I think most of the people in the room were expecting him to kind of say, "Oh, I've had my time at Chelsea now, you know, a bigger club or something like that." Yeah, but he actually said, "I, I couldn't do it to my kids." Um, he said. You know, the, the, the reality of, of my life is that i move the kids every few years, and it's heartbreaking. I take them out of school, and they have to start again in a new school, in a new country, in a new place, sometimes in a new language. But more than that, I just, it's just watching them have to say goodbye to their friends. You know, they've made these friends, and then they have to go and do it again, and then I take them away from those friends, and they make friends, and then they take them away from that. And he said, it just it, it, it breaks my heart every time. Didn't obviously ultimately stop him going back to Chelsea eventually but I just think it does kind of highlight if you want the, the kind of the, the ways in which these are just just ordinary people in some ways you know Jose Mourinho is, is the special one uh, and you know has this, this global profile in football but he's also just daddy and you know somebody who needs to be there for his kids and has to make good decisions in their, that respect those are the sorts of things that players worry about. Um, it's all that kind of that kind of stuff. Because the worst case scenarios are those like Vincent. You you know football transfers often happen very quickly. You don't often have a lot of time to prepare. So you end up in a foreign place, you literally turn up at the airport, there's no one there to meet you, you don't speak the language, you your mobile phone doesn't work, you haven't got a car, you don't know how to get a belt you're in a hotel on your own, eating the same food every day. You don't know anybody. Um, it just, those are the sorts of things that, that that really worry the players and that start to get on top of them. So clubs can start to manage the little things more effectively, and some do. Um, some do. They have these the, this this sort of these new departments that are emerging in certainly Premier League clubs now, where you used to have the player liaison officer, but now you've got player care. And that, for me, is a massive growth area in football employment over the next probably 10, 15 years. Player care, um, you know, you just need to, to 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 get the little things right. And I'll I'll I'll, I'll tell you one thing that a, a psychologist at a club said to me once. He said, you know, it's absolutely ridiculous. Football clubs, um, football players spend about twelve percent of their time actually within the club. The rest of the time, they are off doing other things. And he said to me, you know, it's ridiculous, you've got, um, it's like having a a Rolls Royce that's cost you, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds and you fill it with cooking oil and wonder why it doesn't go. And that kind of is the the analogy, if you want, in regards to football, clubs are paying um, tens of millions, in some cases hundreds of millions of pounds for players and then they're just not treating them with care and, you know, it just seems absolutely ridiculous because then they wonder why they're not performing.
0: I think it's interesting. I mean, I've watched the uh, Amazon Prime documentary um, about Tottenham being a Spurs fan. And one of the interesting things linking to this is with Stephen Birdwin, the new winger that they signed, they have a complex where they try and encourage the players to go, at least in the short term. And um, one of the things they said, they went, oh, so-and-so on the floor below and the other players on the floor above. And, until now, I hadn't really thought about it. But actually, what a great way of getting you to integrate with your teammates and have people to talk to and know what you're doing. Because if you're not sure, you can go and ask. There are apartments where family and stuff can say. So like one of the things that because um, his family were there and they had like mum and dad and all that type of stuff. They went, we'd probably go for a two bed. That means we could come over and stay in the same room. And when I look back at it now, you go, actually, that's so simple from the club. But what a great way of doing it, because all of a sudden, a lot of those things where you're not having a chance to talk to family or you are isolated are being cared for in one place and probably in a place where they can help as well. They've probably got people that on front desk that go, if you've got problems, let us know, all that type of stuff.
1: Yeah. And you know, I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you if you want the antithesis of that. I'll give you an example, of probably the worst case I've ever seen of this. I was, um, I was working with a club. I won't say what club it was. It was a football league club in the Midlands, and I was staying at a hotel that was just across from the stadium. Um, the night before, I went to, uh, to, to to go in and do this 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 work with them, um, and it was during the transfer window. And I was stood at the reception desk checking out in the morning and taxi pulled up outside of the hotel and um, taxi driver comes in with a young lad. He's probably about 18, 19 years old. Um, he's uh, he's in a club track suit. so not the club that... I'm at, another club track suit, so kind of figuring that you know, he's been transferred, new player, didn't recognise him, I have to say. The uh, He looks a bit lost. The taxi driver points at the stadium and just says, you there training tomorrow, and then walks away. Gets back in the cab and drives off. So this lad sort of looks at the stadium and then just stands there, the woman behind the reception desk, who's sort of dealing with me, sort of looks up and says, "Are you okay there?" He points at his ear, in other words, to suggest I don't don't understand. I don't speak English. So she just says name. Um, he gives his name. She's got a clipboard with a list of names on. She ticks him off. She's already got the keys all lined up behind. There's a few other young lads, I assume um, other players, sat already in the in the restaurant. Um, she gives him a key. Um, he leaves his bag where it is and he just wanders off towards the room I um, then say I think he's left his bag here I think she's expecting he's expecting something to take his bag which he's not um, so he gets called back he takes his bag he just wandered it off I never saw him again and I just kind of thought if that's this young lad's sort of um, arrival at an EFL club um, and that's it. You know, he's going to go into his room now. He's totally on his own. He's, he's, he's a young lad. He's totally on his own. He doesn't really know where he is. He clearly doesn't speak the language. He doesn't even be given the time to go to the stadium the next day. I'm not sure if he knows what he's going to do, but just smacks to me, of just poor organisation. And, you know, what, what's that young lad going to do? He's going to go and sit in his room, maybe put foreign TV on that he can't understand, sit in his bed, get his phone out, and text somebody and say... I've arrived. And, and, yeah, you know, you kind of hope that the club would have done a bit more once he actually arrived in the stadium the following day to start piecing together his life in, in, in that place. But equally, you can imagine that it might well have been the case that Saturday he's in the squad, he's in front of 40,000 fans and he's got to perform. He doesn't know where he is, he don't know, doesn't know who the people around him are, he, he's, he's not sure what he's eating tonight or what he's going to do. So whilst there are some, some better examples nowadays, there are still also some very poor ones as well.
0: I think we also talk about first impressions, and it's just not a great first impression. You're being left by yourself, it's, it's not a great first impression. No. So listen, last topic before I let you go, because I appreciate you running out of time, is um, you mentioned about the um, blocking of pathways or potentially blocking pathways that your uh, PhD came into, and you obviously noticed particularly in basketball, um, and then kind of linked into academies and stuff. What were your findings within that sector, and, and what did that look like?
1: Um, in, in basketball, it was it was pretty clear that that, that um, the recruitment of predominantly American players into British basketball was creating quite a significant problem, Um and, you know young young British players just weren't getting the opportunities at the highest possible levels. It, it, it even became sort of one stage worse than that because American players were coming over and, and becoming dual nationals or, or, or were dual nationals or were becoming naturalised. So it got to the stage where people across Europe would say that the, the English or British basketball team was the only one in Europe that spoke with an American accent um, simply because it was just full of Americans. So... Um, so, there was work to do there. The, the, the ultimate irony, I guess, was that, that that sort of British team with American accents did represent Team GB at the Olympics in 2012. There were some good British players in there, I should say, um, but there were also um, a number of um, naturalised Americans uh, as well. In the context of, um, of football, though, it's actually really interesting because I think there is this, I think there was a misassumption that the involvement of foreign players blocks the developmental path for young English players um, I mean it's incredibly complicated I mean, you've got to think if you're uh, if you're a, a first team manager and you need for example a fullback um, do you try to bring somebody in from the Academy um, and, and blood them as such, to give them those those minutes, give them that time to bring them into the squad? Or do you buy a ready-made foreign international who can come in and do a job for you probably straight away? If you're a club with money, for most managers, that's a no-brainer. Um, and that's why you tend to find that it's the clubs that have less um, financial capability that tend to be those that are are better at using their academy because because you know academies are there to do two things: produce players for the first team or to sell on to generate income. And um, if you look at Southampton as a case, if you look at those players that have gone on now, I'm talking about your Shaws and your Lalanas and clients and, and so on, players like that. If you think about those guys, you know they a lot of them made debuts in the League One or in the Championship when the club had a much greater reliance on on its academy. The Chelseas, the Cities, the Liverpools, and so on. You know, do they have the? Do they need to use the academy in the same sort of way when they've got the financial resources that they've got? Depends on the on the club. We know Liverpool have been very successful um, over the years. Other clubs um, rely far less on their on their academies. What we found though was 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 really interesting in that um, we found that players were getting opportunities to make first-team debuts if they were good enough. But almost more than that, what we found is that the general quality of young English players was improving because of their intermingling with foreign players. So we were specifically really looking at foreign players and academies. Um, and you know, if you know anything about the regulations that stipulate the transfer of minors in football, so players under 18... You know there are quite strict regulations which which um, which mean that you can't always um, recruit a player in a foreign player into an academy under age. You can only do it if they're an EU, they come from an EU member state. Um, if they come for non-footballing reasons, um, or there's another reason as well which which escapes me at the moment. But um, but there are still you when we were engaged in this study there were quite a few foreign players who were playing in um in the academy system but what we found is that there was this process of what we refer to actually as feet exchange so let me give you a bit of background in, in this term in 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 the area of highly skilled migration there is a concept called brain drain so you know, certain nations lose their most talented
0: people Because, for example, they can go elsewhere and earn far more. Brazil, um, for example. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm thinking in the context outside of football to start with. So
1: outside of football, you've got this concept of brain training. You've also got this concept of brain exchange. So if you get lots of very talented people and they all um, end up being employed in similar sorts of places, then you get this circulation of skills and knowledge. We identified the same thing in football. And you're absolutely right. You know, Brazil is the example there. So, so the best Brazilian players don't stay and play in Brazil. What they tend to do is come and play in the leading European leagues. And then at the end of their careers, they might go back and play for you know, a, a, a Brazilian team then. But what we found is that when these foreign players intermingled with the English players there was this concept not of feet drain, which is the footballing equivalent of brain drain, but there was this concept of feet exchange that, in fact, um, the English players were learning quite a lot from the foreign players. And it was things like, for example, you know, technical ability. So in the past, it's often been the case that English players have been criticised for their their technical abilities, so, and by that I mean their relationship with the ball, if you want in simple terms, um, relative to to foreign players. So what we found, speaking to coaching staff and academy managers and directors, was was that they would give us lots of different examples of the ways in which, by having the foreign players and the English players together, the 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 English players were learning from the foreign players, and the foreign players were learning from the English players. So the English players were learning, you know, those aspects of of, of technical ability from, from being around the foreign players. And interestingly, the foreign players, they were learning to cope with the demands of the pace, particularly the Premier League, um, and the physical nature of it. So what you ended up with was this kind of accumulation of, of development, if you want whereby um, all of these players kind of improved. And, And that kind of comes back to this kind of argument that in the old days, before we had significant numbers of foreign players drawn from the breadth of different places that they are now in the Premier League, as an example, then in training and matches every day, the best English players used to get tested against the best English players. Nowadays, in training and matches, they get tested against the best players from all around the world, some of the best players in the world. So what that's done is that's improved, I think, the standard of... English players generally. And I think now if you look at the, the the English players who are really having an impact now in the in the Premier League and in some cases in other parts of Europe, of course, as well. And then if you also look, for example, at the England national team, you, you see players who are more technically adept, but also able to cope with the demands of, of, of playing in what is one of the quickest and strongest leagues anywhere in Europe, if not the quickest and strongest league in Europe. So In answer to your question, I still think there is a certain amount of blocking that occurs in the developmental path, but maybe only for certain sorts of clubs. But at the same time, the involvement of foreign players has significantly improved English football. Um, And not just in terms of what happens on the pitch, but also in terms of their outlook. So if I I go all the way back to the players like um, Gianfranco Zola, Gianluca Vialli, and so on, when players such as that joined Chelsea, you had um, a number of other high-profile foreign players who joined um, other teams in the Premier League. When they arrived back in the early 1990s, they came with a completely different perception of what football was. They brought their own S&C coaches before an S&C coach in England was a thing. They brought their own dietitians and nutritionists, which, again, before it was a thing. They did additional training. They lifted weights. They did all the things that footballers take for granted now, but which, 25 years ago, were an absolute mystery to the ab- the average English top league footballer who was more used to, as Dennis Wise put it many years ago when he first met Gianfranco Zola, he was more used to five pints in the evening and then a full-cooked breakfast before he went to training. So I think you know football has moved a significant way in the last uh, 25 to 30 years and I think quite a lot of that movement has occurred as a result of the involvement of foreign players, but also coaches, managers and even owners as well.
0: I think it's interesting because it goes against the narrative to a certain degree where people say that it's a, it's a blocked pathway that um, players don't get through. But I think, yeah, highlighting the benefits of it, whilst there are obviously issues, the benefits is that we've actually seen. And uh, I know I've read some literature, in particular some books, that talks about this knowledge share and why England were behind, saying where we broke away from kind of mainland Europe and they had a lot of knowledge share. We kind of did our own thing. And then for a long period of time, we were having to catch up. But I think uh, at the moment, in particular, everyone seems more open to go and investigate what everyone else is doing, both in sport and out of sport, which is which is good.
1: Yeah, and I think that you know we we you make a good point there because we have been of Ireland mentality. Um, particularly in elite sport for, for a long time and I think that one of the biggest things that hinders us as well because we have this island mentality, you know, we are very poor speakers of foreign languages, we don't travel well, the, 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 the English um, and the British by extension but I think one of the things that has really hindered the development of young English players is their reluctance to go abroad. So whereas we see quite a significant influx of foreign players coming into English leagues we still see a very small number of English players playing outside of, of Europe. And obviously the, sort of the current example of a player who's spent the majority of his early part of his career abroad is Jane Sancho, but then you've got those other players who tend to go later in their careers. So your, your Beckhams, your Bales, you know, Joe Cole Lil. So players such as that. So I, th- I, think, if we, I think if English players... Um, and there are more probably, I think, than people appreciate, abroad. But if more English players operated with their mentality that if an opportunity isn't available in England, it might be available somewhere else, then that would improve potentially the scope of opportunity that young English players have.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm hope I'm hopeful that that's the case. I mean, over recently, so you said, you've got Sancho. I know you've got Bellingham, who's gone out. You had Ampadu. Um, You've got Luckman, Sesson Young. So I'm hoping that more young players rather than playing in 23s will look at that as a possible avenue and go out and try and play in Bundesliga or whatever that is. Um, Listen, last question. This is going to be a bit more of a tricky one to what I normally ask people, um, which is who's the best kind of player or coach they work with. Obviously within your role, it's a bit different. So i ask you, who's the most, um, who's the person within sport or football that you've come across that, has most inspired you, and why? That
1: is um, that is a really really tricky one. I mean, I've been very fortunate um, in the course of my career to to work with um, you know some fantastic some fantastic people, um, and you know what? I'm I'm going to skip this one because I don't <laughs> think there is any one. I wouldn't want to give primacy to any one particular individual who I think has, um, you know, who has probably inspired me. Interestingly, and maybe this is something to do with my background as a as a basketball player, but um, you know, I often look at the American sports franchises as um, as those which. Sort of set the lead, set the tone, if you want. And I think often if you look at European leagues and, and you know, the Premier League, I put in this that, that often they are replicas, if you want, of of those models, those US models pre-existing, be it NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, National Hockey League. And whilst they obviously operate in slightly different um, within slightly different parameters, often the sort of the um, the models on which those leagues are based um, are are American ones. And I look, therefore, as a basketball player, at people like David Stern, who was the former commissioner of the NBA. Um, you know, David Stern was somebody who, who took the NBA from, uh, it was a real mess, back in the 1970s, to one of the biggest global, biggest and most highly respected global sports entities in the, anywhere in the world. It, you know, he was helped, I should say, along the way by a period of some of the most incredible players uh, at any one point in time. Certainly my, my athletic hero, um, if you want, and um, probably somebody that people will be far more familiar with now if they watched The Last Dance on Netflix. But my hero growing up was always Michael Jordan. But also Phil Jackson, of course, the coach um, in, in that, that Chicago Bulls team, who then went on also to coach the Lakers um, and so on. Um, I think he is, uh, um, those kind of people are the people that I sort of, you know, kind of take my, take my lead from because they've, they, they are, they are, I think the pioneers, if you want, um, often replicated in different, different kind of environments. Um, and I think, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot that can be learned from people like that.
0: I was hoping you were going to say Greg Popovich, but I'll let you are <laughs> So Richard, listen, I really appreciate obviously giving up a lot of your time, some really insightful and great, um, conversation now, which I'm sure will be useful to a lot of people. And um, hopefully we can do this again at some point because I know there's loads more that we haven't even discussed. Uh, It's been fantastic to speak to you, Michael. Uh, And uh, yeah, thanks very much. Cheers. Speak to you soon.